Good morning. We're once again in our new series called An Unpopular Message, which sounds like a weird thing to preach in church, right? Why would a preacher preach an unpopular message? It's a message focused on the signs of our times, uh, on what the Bible says about what will take place before Jesus comes. And the goal is that we would not just have instruction and education and intellect, but that we would take this news and do, as the Bible says, to be on the alert, to be aware of his coming, to not be resting and lazy and sleeping, but to know that Jesus is returning, to know that he's coming as a thief in the night, and to be ready for him when he returns. 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 tells us this, For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come, and how will it come? Like a thief in the night. In other words, you may know the thief is coming, you may have locks on your doors to protect it, but you don't know what? When the thief is coming. And that's what Jesus is saying. He says, I will return. But he says, even I don't know the day until the Father sends me. He says, but I will return. And we as Christians, the goal of Jesus' message is that we would be on the ready. We would be prepared for his return. That so many times in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, Jesus gives multiple parables of the return and being ready. He gives the parables of the ten virgins with their lamps that five were prepared because their lamps were full, but five were unprepared because they had not filled their lamps adequately, and so that when the bridegroom came, five were left out of the celebration. That's the warning for us as Christians, as this message is specifically to Christians, in how, again, we should act and be aware of the signs of the times of Christ's return. And not only that, just to be aware, but how we should live and go about our lives because we know Jesus is returning. First Thessalonians goes on to say, 5 goes on to say that at the time of Christ's return, people will be surprised. And after that is done, things will get really bad. But Christians are to be on the alert and not surprised, anticipating the return of Jesus. As a reference point, we look back at the story of Noah. And depending on how you study uh, the building of the ark, it took between 70 and 120 years to have the ark built by hand. Translation for us this morning that 70 to 120 years of warnings that the people had an entire generation of warning about the coming flood. And yet, did the people listen? Nope. They went on, the Bible tells us that they went on eating and drinking and marrying and doing business, just like normal, having no concern of a coming flood. In fact, I think they were probably mocking Noah about building an ark in the desert where there had not been rain forever and ever. But when the rain came, after all those decades of warning, it was too late because the door of the ark was shut, just like with the, the parable of the, of the ten bridegrooms. And when it was shut, the rain came, and all who were not ready were destroyed because it was too late. We read and learn from Noah's time that we, in very similar fashion, have been warned, haven't we? But here's the kicker. We haven't been warned for 70 to 120 years. How long have we been warned? Since the very time of Christ, right? 
over and over. Even beyond that, going back to Genesis, with the warnings of Noah that the Savior would come. Revelations 22, verse 12, Jesus makes the statement. He says, behold, in other words, pay attention, kids. This is good news. This is, this is something you've got to stop doing. No more squirreling. Pay attention. He says, behold, I am coming. And you know the adjective that the Greek uses when Jesus says, I am coming? He says, I'm coming quickly. And my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done or how he has lived. Jesus says, I am coming, and I'm coming in a specific way. I'm coming quickly. This is going to happen fast. It's not like you're going to see me way off down the road. Like I remember when Kristen used to live in Kansas. It drove me crazy after living in Colorado in the mountains that when we were in Kansas, I would be on the road driving and I could see miles and miles down the road and a car was coming and I'd just start counting how many seconds it took for that car to get me there because I could see them way far away and it seemed like it took forever to get there. But Jesus says that is not the way I'm coming. I am coming how? Quickly. Therefore, you need to be ready because he says, when I return, I will have my reward with me, but I will also render to every individual based on how they have lived their lives for me. So we see that God gives Christians specifically ample warnings and signs of what will happen when the return of Christ is close. And whether it's our generation or the next generation, or the next generation. The call isn't to know the time, because the Bible says no one will know the exact time of Christ's return, but the call instead is to be ready. That's the call, to not be lazy, to not sit back on our laurels and take comfort, but to be ready. In this series, as we look at some of the things that will happen that the Bible talks about before the return of Christ, we see those things happening in our culture. And we think this could be the time. Our parents thought it could be the time. The apostles thought it could be the time. The time is not the important thing. The important thing is being ready and being prepared for when he does return. That when he returns, he would find our hearts focused completely on him and not ourselves, serving him and looking forward to being caught up in the air with him, as the Bible says, quickly in the twinkling of an eye. Now last week we looked at the issue of the rise of socialism and although how it's presented well to everybody that this is good for you, it basically ruined every society that accepted it, except for the elite leaders who got rich and wealthy and more power. Everyone else suffered tremendously. This morning we look at a couple other events of this time. And let me make this point before we start because for some people, even for Christians, talking about this stuff just stimulates fear and anxiety and, and people just want to go live in a cave and hide out or build a bunker in their backyard and go live down there and stock food and supply things. But here's the, the thing for the Christian, I believe specifically for the Bible. We should not be living in fear at the signs of our times because the signs of, of the times point to one thing. The return of who? Our Savior. And shouldn't that be an exciting thing? Shouldn't we be looking forward to that? This should be good news. Now, full well knowing 
there may be some trial and tribulation and trouble, perhaps some persecution. That may happen, but it's a short time for us. The big focus is not what happens so much during that time, but the return of Christ when his reign is reestablished. So, the disclaimer this morning is this, as we hear this, whether you're listening online or in person, don't live in fear or despair. Don't be looking for some place to run and hide and just disappear from the world. But instead, rejoice and live for Jesus and look forward to his return when he comes to take you and me home with him in the place he has prepared for us in heaven. So, first thing we're looking at this morning, one of two. Wonderful subject, kind, kind of tying in with socialism is this thing called globalism. Anybody ever hear about globalism, right? It's the thing that talks about one world government, one world rule, right? That's one of the signs of Christ's return is there will be leaders that will come and try and bring us all together to make us one big happy family over all the world where none of the countries and nations are fighting. We all live together, one currency, the whole bit. We're all one big group living under one worldly born leader, which is not Jesus Christ. I found this while I was studying. It was a, it's a condensed version of a recent report that came out from the United Nations, and it was titled UN Agenda, United Nations Agenda 2030. And this is what the report from the United Nations states. It says it had a goal of reaching these objectives by 2030. Well, 2030 is not that far away, is it? A new world order, that's in the Bible, right? Also called a one world government, a global currency, a central bank, the end of national sovereignties, in other words, no individual remaining governing groups, but it all comes under one world leader, mandatory vaccines, a universal basic income, microchipping of all citizens, and an end to fossil fuels. Whether you believe the article or not, it, it was there, and when it was made public, the UN denied it and the media debunked it. But the point is, the Bible speaks to this issue of globalization, doesn't it? One world government under one leader. And the point for us as Christians is to know about this because it's a spiritual issue. It's not just a political issue or a financial issue that let's not have to worry about messing with it, you know, tremendous exchange rates all the time in the market and whose money goes up and who goes down and how we keep that exchange rate, but it's about a spiritual battle that is going on for your soul and your mind and your life as a Christian. Globalization is placed out in this way. It's for the good of the people and the good of the planet. We, as men and women, humankind who have literally destroyed God's creation, are now going to save it. We're going to be the saviors now, right? We've destroyed the earth, but now we're going to save it. And now we've kind of gone awry, and we've realized that. So we're all going to come together as one global, worldly people and live in harmony, right? That's what we're going to do. Well, and then on the political side, there's some other theories out there. I'm going to throw one out at you. 
which one of the current theories out is this. It's uh, where a lot of the theologians and people that watch these times call, talk about this group called FANG, F-A-A-N-G, that's coming to rule the government. FANG is actually an acronym for several businesses in our world that are tremendously influential over how we live and what changes our lives. In FANG, F-A-A-N-G, the acronym is for these companies. Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, and Google. It also includes three high-tech companies in China called Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent. Well, let me ask you this. Whether you laugh at it or not, have, has your life been influenced by Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, or Google? Has it done anything in your life different from before they were in existence. Well, people depend on Google all the time. I mean, Facebook now, although it's stocky, lost $31 billion the other, this last week, but he was seeking to have this global interaction of people, right? And when Facebook was established, it was first established on just a college campus and it went nuts because people could be in contact with each other. Some of you may have Facebook accounts to keep in touch with people. Apple, some people are pro-Apple, they're pro-Android, there's a little debate there on that. Amazon, well now if you have Amazon Prime, you don't have to wait for anything, do you? You can have it in two days, and you can order almost anything. You can order food, you can order car parts, you can order computer stuff. It all comes to you. I do think these companies, whether it's true or not that they are seeking to rule the world, have had a tremendous impact on our life. Just like companies did after World War II that came out with industrialism. They changed the way we lived. When TV dinners first came out, they changed the way we lived. When refrigerators were first introduced, where you didn't have to have an icebox, it changed the way we live. When microwaves became popular, what did it do? It changed the way we lived. I mean, we look now that, oh my gosh, how could you cook without a microwave, you know? How could you do that? Well, people did it for thousands of years. But when it came on the scene, it changed the way people lived. And these companies have also changed the way people live. And that's what we need to be aware of, to what these influential people are doing, because it seems that the people who have the money and the power have a lot of say in the direction of where we go and how we live. And again, it's all presented for our convenience, isn't it? Well, you don't need to have a stove or a gas range, an electric range, you just need a microwave. For most people, that's their real wife, isn't it? Is the microwave or their real husband. That's who they depend on, right? And then you pop in your TV dinner, your bird's eye frozen meal, which didn't used to be there 100 years ago, and you go on with your merry life. It's all there to benefit you. Well, some things are good, some things are bad. When the computer was first introduced, it was intended to come out to change our lives that when everybody had a computer, do you know what the goal was originally? That we would have the majority of the week off to relax and go vacation and have family time together. Well, I don't know about you, but I know with my own life, you know what the computer did? It made my life more hectic. Because now instead of waiting in snail mail for two or three weeks to get a, re a response or a phone call, now, everyone I works with, work with want answers immediately. 
and it actually, instead of giving me relaxation, has created more stress in my life because I have more I need to get done now. And people want it now, right? These things influence our life. So we go back, we look at the Old Testament and what was going on at that time. In Genesis 11 and 1 Chronicles, uh, we'll read a verse out of Genesis 11. Back in Genesis 11 and 1 Chronicles, it was centered around a king, a leader named Nimrod. I don't know how many of you have your kids named Nimrod, but I'd suggest probably not doing that. Um, Nimrod was the leader who commissioned the building of a specific building that God came against. Do you know what it was? The Tower of Babel. Now, Nimrod was a mighty king. He was also the great-grandson of Noah, so there's not a lot of time passed in here. And at that time, the Bible tells us that this amazing, interesting thing, all the people spoke a common language. You didn't need Google Translate. You didn't need uh, uh, anything, you know, Rosetta Stone to learn another, another language. Everyone spoke a common language. And so Nimrod commissioned the building of this Tower of Babel to raise up to the heavens. And this is the motivation. Genesis 11, verse 4. They said, come, let us build for ourselves. Now that seems like a simple sentence to roll off the tongue, but there's huge theological impact in there. Come, let who? Us, not God, let us build a temple for who? For ourselves. Let us make this great thing for us. Otherwise, or let, let me read that again. They said, come let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the earth. In other words, what Nimrod commissioned was this tower to reach up to the heaven, in essence, to reach God and be equal with him and make a name for themselves that God could not disperse them or be in control over them. Well, we know the story that they built this tower up and God looked down to see what they were doing and said, if we don't do something, they will try and be like us, which is the same story back in Genesis with Adam and Eve, where Satan was, was his desire was to be not just like God, but greater than God. And so God destroys the Tower of Babel and God destroys the common language and gives everybody different languages so they could not be unified in that way. It's an interesting picture because in globalization, in globalization, the goal is to what? Bring us all back together in one simple function. Now we also look at the at Daniel chapter two, as we read in there about the story of another leader by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. Now he had a dream about this massive statue and he couldn't interpret it. Well, there just happened to be a man of God by the name of Daniel there, a prophet who could interpret dreams by God on God's behalf because God spoke to him. And so Nebuchadnezzar commissions Daniel to tell him what the dream is. And Daniel says, this is what God told me the dream was. And he gives Nebuchadnezzar this, this rundown 
of what this statue was. Now, the statue was this massive statue of an individual leader, but it was made out of different substances. And as theologians have gone back and looked at this, we disseminate this, that the head of the statue, which was during the time of Nebuchadnezzar, represented Babylon. Babylon would be there, and then Babylon would go, and from the head they would move down to the chest of silver with its two arms, which represented the great empire of, of Medo-Persia that was to come. The stomach and the thighs, instead of silver or gold, were made of bronze, and they represented the Greek empire under Alexander the Great. From there we moved down and it had legs of iron, no longer precious metals, more common, but legs of iron that represented the coming of the Roman Empire. After that, we had the feet and the toes of clay, which represent the final kingdom that would be established on the world. But that's not the important part. The important part is the rock on which the statue stands because that represents Jesus Christ, who will come once again in his final kingdom as the solid rock to overcome all, including the statue, and usher in the kingdom of God. A world not filled with pride and sin and personal gain, but a world filled with no tears, with rejoicing, and with the Shekinah glory of God. Revelation chapter 13 tells us that this final kingdom will be a heavenly kingdom, not a worldly kingdom. But it also tells us that there will be a final battle from this final kingdom of the world, which is the ultimate Nimrod, the as the Bible refers to it as the beast from Satan in Revelation 13, 1-2. And it tells us this about the beast in this final worldly kingdom. It says, The beast was given power to wage war against God's holy people. It was also given authority over every tribe, every language, and every nation. And all will worship the beast. Well, that sounds like globalization to me, doesn't it? Sounds like the, the ushering of where our world is going. If you want to turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and we read about this this time of what Jesus says will happen in these sobering words about the, the time of when this final earthly kingdom takes place. 2 Thessalonians 2 7 to 12 I'm reading out of New American Standard it says for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. In other words you have lawlessness running amok in your world right now it's current present the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then lawlessness, then the law, lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to the end the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish. Now catch this. This is a key thing for Christians. Verse 10. And with all the deception of the wickedness for those who perish. Why do those people perish? Because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be what? Saved. They rejected salvation in Jesus Christ. Verse 11. Another kicker. For this reason, God will send upon them a what? A deluding spirit, so that they will believe what? What is false. In order that they may be judged, 
who did not believe in the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. This is pretty impacting, at least for me. It talks about this time of lawlessness where um, the one of Satan is trying to rise up and take control of the earth, and there's just lawlessness everywhere. Well, I don't know if you watch the news, but there seems to be a lot more lawlessness going on now than there used to be. Police are being defunded. There's all this craziness. But it says there will be many who will not believe in the love, the salvation message of Jesus. So what will God do? He will send a deluding spirit upon them so that they will believe what's false. Where this impacts me is sometimes I look at what's going on and I talk to other people and I'm like, how in the world can you even think that? much less believe that and buy into that. I mean, especially as Christians, the Bible speaks to that. How, how can you have that mindset? Second Thessalonians answers it, doesn't it? It says that there are those who re do not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. So God sends upon them a what? A deluding spirit to believe what? To believe what is false. You see the spiritual battle that is going on here? This globalization issue and when the Antichrist rises, it's a spiritual issue. And that's again why Christians are called to be on the alert, on the ready, to make sure that as we read in our verse on 2 Corinthians, that we test ourselves to make sure that we are of the faith so that we do not fail the test. Why? Because God says, otherwise, if we don't have true salvation, there will be a spiritual battle and a deluding spirit that has come upon us so that we will believe what is false. Now, you like me when you talk to the Christians and have these other radical ideas and you're like, where are you getting that from? How can you believe that? This answers your question, right? This answers your question. Acts chapter 1, verses 6 to 11 also gives us insight on this answer about the deluding spirit and what happens. Because it tells us about Jesus' ascension into heaven, as he was raised up into heaven. And it tells us about the Holy Spirit and the coming of Pentecost. But more importantly, Acts chapter 1, verses 6 to 11, it tells us something tremendously more important, even than those things, which those things are important, right? But it tells us about this. It says, just as Jesus ascended, he will come back. We will see him in the clouds. He will come and we will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. And it will be fast. So, what should we do? Well, let's go build a bunker in Ken's backyard and hide out until all this passes, right? <laughs> let's go hide out. Let's go in fear. Let's, let's go crazy. No, what we should be doing it's again what 2 Corinthians 13, 5 says, to test yourselves, just make sure that you are of the faith so you don't fail the test. Why? So you don't get this deluding spirit sent upon you that you believe what is false. I tell you what, there's a lot of lies out there. Second, we should be doing what 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 2 states. It says, first of all, then, I urge and with entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all those who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. We should be praying for our leaders more than chafing our leaders and talking about how bad and lousy and stupid they are. We should be interceding for them and praying 
that the, the veil of darkness of sin would be relieved from their eyes, that they would come to salvation, that they would trust and rely upon God's divine guidance, that the, the deceit, the betrayal, the lies, the, the sin, the pride, the arrogance, the, the consumption would be covered and they could see the truth. And again, we should not be living in fear, but we should be making ourselves ready every day for the return of Christ, for when he comes quickly, we shouldn't be afraid. We are given a spirit of conquering, of overcoming. Jesus tells us he didn't, we are not given a spirit of fear and timidity, but a spirit of self-discipline and power through the Holy Spirit in Christ. We should be moving forward as Christians with all confidence and joy and praise for the coming of our returning king. Number two, we should know about the signs of the times as we're talking about. If you want to turn with me to Matthew chapter 4, we'll spend the rest of the day there. Matthew chapter 24, excuse me, Matthew 24 verses 1 to 14. This is a picture of when Jesus was coming out of the temple and he makes a comment about the end of the age as we know it to his disciples. And the disciples, in their curiosity, ask Jesus about this. And Jesus answers and simply tells them, look for these signs of the return, of, of my return. And I find it interesting that Jesus told them this, again, some 2,000 years ago. Why would he do that? Was this just a big, bad joke? The intent was to keep every generation of believers at the ready for Christ. Again, not to become lazy in our faith and, and lackadaisical and just seek comfort, but to be doing the work of ministry, to be doing the will of God, to be using the spiritual gifts that God gives us to look forward and be in that race for the upward call of Christ, to be doers of the word and not merely hearers or receivers or takers only. Jesus spoke to his disciples at that time and told them, look for these signs. And my bet is, my guess is, that from that moment on, what did those disciples do? They looked for those signs, just like what do we do today? We look for the signs of Christ's return. And again, it's up to God when Christ returns, we shouldn't be focused on the day or the hour or the time, because the Bible tells us no one's gonna know. What we should be focused on, again, is being ready and prepared. That's why Jesus made this statement some 2,000 years ago, and it's flowed through every generation, that each generation of believers would not get lazy in their faith, but would be seeking godliness, would be seeking to be ready if it was their generation. So, there are six signs that Jesus speaks of in Matthew 24. Here are the six signs. Verses 4 to 5 talk about deceptions by false Christ's false messiahs, right? Didn't we just read about that in 2 Thessalonians? That in the end times, many will believe in deluding spirits and, and, and follow them. Number two, verses six to seven, the second sign was disputes and wars among nations. Jesus said, before I return, there will be disputes and wars, not just in the family, but between nations and other cultures. Third sign, verses 7 to 8, says there will be worldwide disease and famines. Sounds kind of like what I see on the news every day, right? 
crazy thing is I work for a food company and when we do the statistics, there's actually enough food in the world to feed the entire world, but we throw it away. We withhold it. And what it results in is disease and famines. Number four, verse nine, this one should be challenging and be a wake-up call for Christians. It says, there will be deliverance of believers into tribulation. And if you read the New, the new International Version, it doesn't state tribulation, it states persecution and death. Now this one is one for American Christians that seems a little far off. Do you know that there are persecuted Christians today that are being tortured and dying, having their families broken up, being imprisoned? We look at that and it's so distant because we are not experiencing that. Well, the Bible is clearly telling us that that time could come and could happen. Therefore, we need to be willing not only to rejoice with Christ, but also to what? To suffer with Christ. It's part of the Christian life. Next warning, verses 10 to 13 is this, the defection of false believers. In other words, believers, so-called believers, who do not bear the mark of Christ, which is love, but instead they are haters, there's no love among them, there is lawlessness, there is betrayal, there are false teachers and false prophets. Uh, we go on in first, Second Timothy verses 4, 3 to 5, tell us about this time. And it tells us first that so-called believers will leave the faith In drone and hordes. That should be, if nothing else, a wake-up call for us to go back to 2 Corinthians to test ourselves. Because the Bible clearly tells us that in the time before Christ returns, there will be this great exodus of so-called believers from the true faith of the Bible, from salvation in Christ alone. It's going to happen. And sometimes we think, well, all these people just walk out of the church and be gone. Well, my personal take on is, is this. One of two things will happen. Either one, people just won't come to church anymore. Or two, if they do come to church, it's a church with a theology of their own making, as the Bible calls, one that tickles their ears and tells them what they want to hear. If you look at some of the TV evangelists that are out there right now, they are tremendously popular. We had a generation of, quote, faith healers that, for some reason, never went into the Shriners hospitals or the, the kids' hospitals and healed people, really, with this gift of faith. They just at, told you to give more money and, they, and you would be healed to trust in God. We have now a generation of, if you give, God will give to you. And that every Christian should be happy and blessed. And if you think it, you can achieve it. And that's not what the Bible talks about but it is so popular. I read one theory from theologians in studying on this about the persecution of, of Christians, that here is the interesting theory they had. The persecution of Christians isn't mainly done by the world, but their take was as we have these false Christians leaving and having their ears tickled, it's those churches that will actually come against the true Christians and persecute them because of their radical beliefs in the morality of God and the divine intervention of God. That it's these, quote, ungodly churches that persecute the real Christians and saying, 
well, you're just too narrow-minded. You're just, you can't have that, that biblical morality pressed upon us. You can't tell us what to do. And I think it's an interesting theory whether it happens or not. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4 as we read this. We're told two things in this, talked about these signs of the times. One, about those who leave the church and sound doctrine. And two, how true Christians and true salvation who pass that test in 2 Corinthians should live. So this is a key message for Christians <coughs> to live by. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 to 5, it says this, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Now again, we're preaching to the choir at Wasatch Christian Church because I know that you have endured the messages for a long time, right? You have endured. You're going to get a reward for that. That's a good thing. But it says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will do something. What will they do? They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. In other words, teachers who tell them what they want to hear. Not talk about sin and guilt and repentance. They talk about being blessed and being comfortable and living happy. Verse 4, And they will turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside to myths. Verse 5 is for the true believers. It says this, verse 5, But you, speaking to God's people, you be sober in all things. You endure hardships. You do the work of an evangelist, and you fulfill your ministry. That's God's call. And when I read that this morning and reiterated that, the one thing that stuck out to me was this. Do the work of an evangelist. Do you know what the word work implies? It's going to take personal effort and sacrifice and cost. You're going to have to do it intently, purposely. It's not just going to happen. You have to strive at it, take effort to make it happen, which again is what a lot of what I will call pseudo-Christians don't want to hear. They don't want to have to do the work of evangelism or ministry. They want people to tailor to them, to come to them, to provide for them, to care for them, to do everything for them. And Jesus says, no, you go out and you do. And again, for the Christian, here's what our call is. Verse 5, but you be sober in all things and endure hardships. Do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. That's our call. That should be the magnet on your refrigerator and the big door over your sign when you walk out of your house every day. It says, here's what you need to do today. Here's what you got to do. And the final sign that Jesus gives is found in verse 13, where it talks about how the gospel will be preached to all the world. And then Jesus' return will be soon. Mark 13.10 also supports this gospel preaching. But in Mark 13.10, it talks about... Um, how the gospel is preached to all the nations in the world. Actually, the word nations in Mark 13, 10 is a word called in Greek called ethnos. We translate it in English as nations, but the actual translation is ethnos. From where do you think we get our common word? Ethnos. What does that sound like? Ethnic. In other words, Mark is speaking to saying there are different 
ethnic groups that the whole world or the gospel will be preached to. It's not nations as we see it, but it's ethnic cultures. It's people groups in different parts of the world, not specific empires. Now, it's estimated that there are roughly 16,825 ethnic people groups in our world of different types. And as we look at it, we see what some of the different Christian projects are saying about how much the gospel has been preached to them. Out of that 16,825, the Joshua Project states that there are only 7,287 left that need to hear the gospel of Christ, of different ethnic groups, not ruling empires. Again, not nations, but ethnic groups. When you look at the International Board of Missions, it states, oh, no, no, there's not 7,000 that haven't heard the gospel. There's only 2,945 ethnic groups that have not heard the gospel. And then if you look at the National Christian Foundation, it states, oh, no, 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 we're closer than that. There's only 2% of the world that has not heard the gospel yet. Through TV, through uh, the Bible, through radio, through drama presentation like Michelle does with, with, with Wycliffe Ministries, that with whatever it is, whatever verbiage through dance, that they claim there's only 2% of the world that has not heard the gospel yet. Whichever one of those three groups are right or wrong or close, the point is this. The amount of people that need to hear the gospel, the different ethnic groups, is not that many. And with our internet speed that we have today and being able to, to share the gospel and different medias and means, that can be reduced pretty darn fast, right? That should be a sign that Christ is returning soon. So again, the question comes down to this. How do we live as Christians? Where do we put our focus? Again, it's not on trying to find the day or the time or the hour of Christ's return. It's not about getting caught up in these political agendas, but realizing this is a spiritual issue and that Christ has called us to react and respond in a specific way, to have a life application in a specific way. So, first thing I'd say this, kind of joking, but seriously, you want Jesus back soon? Then be preaching the gospel, right? Support those ministries that are taking the gospel to all the earth. You may not be going yourself, but there are those that God has called to go to them and to preach the gospel. Second, as we studied last week and as we've hit with 2 Corinthians again and again, make sure your salvation is a biblical salvation and Jesus Christ alone, the only begotten Son of God, not of works or anything that we could do that we could boast. Make sure your faith is a biblical faith and maintain your faith. Next, prioritize your prayer life. Remember in prayer, you don't change God's mind, but God speaks to you and changes you. Pray for your leaders. Pray for discernment. Pray for wisdom. Pray and dig into the Word of God. That's the next one. Dig into the Word of God and know what the Bible states about the life of Jesus Christ, about the ministry of Christ, about salvation in Christ, and about the time of Christ's return. And pray and ask God what you should do with that. Next, I would say, serve in your church. Show up. And don't just show up. Show up and be active. Give God priority in your life. Don't give bedtime, sleeping in, 
breakfast in your pajamas priority over having time with God at least once a week. Give God priority and show your faith by showing up to church and fellowship and then being involved just as Jesus did. When Jesus instituted that, that communion meal, we read that he put on the appearance of a servant and he served the other disciples, didn't he? He was the one that should have been served. Jesus turned the tables and said, not only will I tell you and teach you how to do this, but I'm gonna show you in real life action that I'm now going to serve you. And there's a call for Christians to show up, to show your faith by being in active fellowship and by being in active service of serving other Christians. What else should we do? This sounds simple, but it's tremendously impacting. Count your blessings. Count the blessings that God has already given you. Don't focus on what you don't have or what you think you need or if that bigger, better thing would bless your life more. Focus on what God has already provided for you. Focus on the goodness of his grace upon you, his salvation upon you, his blessings upon you. Focus on the joy that God gives you, the filling with his Holy Spirit. Focus on Jesus, the focal point of your life and my life. Stay faithful, stay calm, and carry on for the upward call of Christ. Pretty simple. 2 Corinthians 10.5 gives us this great instruction 2 Corinthians 10.5 and Philippians 4.8. 2 Corinthians 10.5 says this. We, speaking of Christians, believers, the church, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive. Why? To the obedience of God. In other words, when fear, sin, laziness, being comfortable, not being in fellowship, when all these things come into your mind, 2 Corinthians says, you, Christian, take those thoughts captive. You take them by force and power, and you eradicate them. You get rid of them. Don't let them consume your mind. Don't let them take over your mind. But Philippians 4.8 tells us what we should be focusing on. It says this, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. So take captive those bad thoughts and get rid of them and then dwell on the goodness of God's. Count your blessings of what you already have. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 to 27 also tells us this. Watch over your heart. Watch over your heart with all diligence. For from it flow the springs of life. And put away from you a deceitful mouth and put devious speech far from you. Let your eyes look directly ahead and let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Watch the path of your feet, and all your ways will be established. Do not turn to the right nor to the left. Turn your foot from evil. In other words, keep your focus on the narrow path of godliness, and do not squirrel. Even though there's nice, shiny, beautiful things out there. Don't squirrel. Keep your focus on the narrow path of God. Why are we doing this? Because Christians, in the end times before Christ returns, in fact, 
anytime as a Christian, there is a spiritual battle for your mind, your faith, and your allegiance. A spiritual battle for your mind, your faith, and your allegiance. And our mind, our faith, our allegiance and devotion should be completely centered on who? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Take every other thought captive and get rid of it. And again, as we've said throughout this whole series, don't live in fear. Don't get caught up in goofy discussions about who's right and who's wrong with, with non-salvation issues. But make sure you're ready and encourage others to be ready and share the gospel. We close with these words as we go forth this week about the firmness of our salvation. Romans chapter 8, verses 35 to 39 gives us this assurance as we close so that we would not fear. It says, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or family, famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, so Jesus says, there, or the Bible tells us there may be some rough times happening, right? Paul, who writes this, experienced some rough times for Christ. He suffered with Christ as well as rejoicing with Christ. But verse 37, Paul tells us this truth. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer. How? Through him, through Jesus, who loved us. For I am convinced, and we should be convinced too, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. <coughs> That's good news to go out on today, isn't it? Nothing can separate us from Christ. Therefore, endure, persevere, overcome, take captive, rejoice, pray, study, and be ready. Let's pray. Father in heaven, once again, we thank you uh, for sending your son Jesus to, to bring us salvation. We pray that we would test our faith, Lord, as your word tells us, that we would be biblical Christians and have a biblical salvation, not one of our own making or feelings, that we would pass the test, Lord. We pray that we would be active and alert and not get caught up in senseless discussions, but Lord, to focus on being ready and encouraging others to be ready and to look forward to your, to your son's return, to rejoice in that and to anticipate his coming. Lord, whether this is the time that you send your son back or not, we pray that we would be faithful, that our lives would be centered around your son, Jesus Christ, that he would be the only God upon our throne of our heart, of our mind, and of our spirit. Lord, may we glorify you in all ways until your son returns when we're with him face to face. In Jesus' name, amen.